0: Welcome back to the Branding for Abundance podcast. This is Dr. TK. So this is going to be an epic episode. So um, a lot of uh, clinicians who follow me, whether it be on social media and or they're in my coaching programs, they've often asked me how I was able to leave a six-figure job doing what I love, working with the population that I love, and like, beyond how did I leave? Um, what caused me to leave? And when I tend to do master classes through webinars and or when I talk to clinicians one-on-one and they pick my brain, I really don't dive into the full blown story. I just pull out certain parts that I feel like are applicable to what they're experiencing right now and or what they need to hear at that given time. So because I've received this question a lot, um, I've decided to dedicate a podcast episode to let you know the real reason why I left the county. And when I say real, meaning like the entire story. So this podcast episode will be a little bit longer than my regular 12 to 15 minutes, but I believe that it's overdue. The only individuals that I've actually heard the full story, I would say about 80% of the story are my psychology students, because I typically bring up this story when we get to the stress chapter in the psychology book. And I like to make things very real and applicable so that they can understand the importance of being assertive, being aligned with working in a place that you feel good at, you know, or good in, that you're treated well, and that you also listen to your body when your body is telling you that it's time to go. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. So, just to give you some context, um, the place that I'm referring to is Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. So, the county within itself. I had an overall good experience. It was more of this specific location that I did not have a good experience. And I do want to put that out there because if you have been around me and I do case presentations, for example, in class or where I work at sometimes where I have, um, you know, consultations and supervision, I tend to, perk up when I talk about the work that I had with the kids in the juvenile facility. Like, I love that population. However, sometimes even though you like who you worked with or who you work with, you don't like who you work under, if that makes sense. And sometimes, you know, you may not like um, management and so that's where my issues came from and so to give you background of where I started is back in 2010 um, I was hired and this is a whole other podcast episode I won't even get into this section because it it, it it was comical but it it, it was interesting is um, I first started working in the juvenile camp in 2010. And so I worked there for about a year and a half, and that was in Lancaster. I was living in Compton at the time. The drive was notorious. I knew what I signed up for, um, but it definitely took a toll on my sleep patterns, on my personal life, because... I was driving two hours to and two hours from work and doing 10 hour shifts four days a week. And I was also teaching at various colleges, which was my choice, but I had different streams of income. So needless to say, I was tired and I was also building a private practice on the side, like on the weekend. Right. So talk about that hustler mentality that it feels good in the moment, but it takes a toll on your body. So. Um, I was there for a year and a half. And then I recognized that, you know, even though I loved, loved the camp, I could not do that drive anymore. So that was the reason why I left the camp. So I then transferred into, I believe I transferred into juvenile hall first. Yeah, I transferred into juvenile hall first. I lasted literally for the six months that I had to stay there to then transfer out. And the first time I was there should have told me something. Um, the first time I was there within three weeks, I was literally in my office crying. And to give you a context of what happened there, I should have known that something was wrong with management when, um, I was even belittled with my title. Now I don't believe it was necessarily race because, you know, I was the minority, but, um, I do believe that it had something to do with maybe power struggle. I'm not sure. I'm being fully transparent. That's just how I felt. Um, Because the management person, not my immediate supervisor, but the person over him, um, was an LCSW. And I recognized that she would only recognize psychiatrists as Dr. So-and-so, but she would not recognize psychologists as Dr. So-and-so. So for example, when she first introduced me to the probation staff in my unit, I said, hi, my name is Dr. Jackson. And she said, oh, this is Takesha. Every time she would introduce me after I said my name, she would always take the doctor off. And then let's just say if a psychiatrist was standing there or we're all in a meeting, she would say, this is Takesha, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, all by our first names. And we all go by Dr. So-and-so. And And then she would introduce the psychiatrist as Dr. So-and-so. And we just felt like that was very disrespectful. At least I did. And so I inquired with other psychologists like, you know, are, are you cool with her, like switching up your name? And they have been working there for way much longer than I had. And they just said, you know, they've recognized that that's just who that person is. So instead of going back and forth, they're just going to call themselves by their first name. And I'm like, hell no. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, no. And so um, I wasn't gonna make it a power struggle. I didn't say anything to her at the time because I just felt like when it comes down to power, um, I just didn't want to rough any feathers, you know. So um, the reason why I actually broke down in my office after three weeks is because we were being micromanaged. I don't know if you've ever worked in a a, a facility or a place where when someone's trying to give you constructive feedback, they CC like five thousand people on the email that have nothing to do with you or your situation. They're not even your immediate supervisor. And that just rubbed me the wrong way as well. And then just the expectations of what they had at st- what they had for staff in comparison to what I saw at the camp, it was just ridiculous. So for example, in the camp, in one unit, we would have up to 4 clinicians. On staff at a time, like on the clock at a time to work with the kids, go to meetings, share responsibilities. Our caseloads wouldn't go anywhere over maybe 12 to 15, which shared responsibilities even with those kids. In the juvenile hall, it was half the amount of kids, but it was only one clinician per unit, literally. Like there was no shared responsibility, so when you're not there, unless your kid is in an emergency um, and they're maybe threatening their life, where the on-call clinician would then step in, you that problem would just wait for you until you came back. And I was like, what the heck? So the system was broken, literally within mental health, to me, because I look at everything from an organizational and systemic standpoint, which trickles down to the quality of care to, for example, the kids. So, you know, that ruffled my feathers and then I guess my body had had enough because I didn't know where the tears came from. I just felt that it was coming and then I started crying. So then I figured out a way to... Manage my day to structure my own day, and what I just started doing was I would literally go sign in because that's how micromanaged it was. We couldn't just go to our unit, we had to go sign in, check in, and then, of course, get all of our referrals and such. And then, what I would do is I would go to my office, I would say good morning, you know, I wasn't rude or anything, but I would go to my office, and my office was a jail cell, by the way. But go to my office, close the door put on some nice soothing music and triage my day meeting, organize what I needed to do. And then I became more efficient in how I handled my time. And it even got to the point where I was then being questioned on why I was able to do such a high level of work in a short period of time because other clinicians were not having that luck. And it almost felt like in one of the meetings with my immediate supervisor that he was telling me that maybe maybe, I'm not um, looking at my time correctly because, you know, he said you write very thorough intakes and I'm trying to figure out how you do all of this, like see the kid and write at the intake in less than two hours because in comparison to my colleagues, they were taking four to six hours. And I said, with all due respect, I'm not my other colleagues and One of my stronger suits is one, dealing with resistant kids because these are kids that are in juvenile hall. Juvenile hall is a holding tank. These kids can be in and out in three hours and we still have to do the paperwork on these kids. Nevertheless, I found a strategy that worked for me in order for me to collect the information in an efficient manner. I know how to build rapport with these kids quite quickly and I just do my job well. So I'm not going to extend the amount of time and draw out my time with these kids because I know that also is a catch-22 because if I don't get through all this paperwork, then I'm going to get emailed about it. So which side of the fence would you rather me fall on? I would prefer to get the work done and I would prefer for y'all to not email me all day, straight up. And he just started laughing because he knew like, you know, my 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 attitude. And so he was like, All right, all right, you know. And I said, you know, whoever taking four to six hours to do an intake, that's on them. Y'all need to have a conversation on why are they taking so long to do a freaking intake. It don't take that long. What you know, are they taking hella breaks? You know, to type up the paperwork. But needless to say, that's not even the podcast episode. So I lasted there for about six months and then I decided to transfer into Um, Aftercare. So aftercare was, it's literally me making a full circle with seeing all of these kids multiple times because now I work with the kids who come out of camp and some of the kids I actually had in juvenile hall and or in the camp facility. So I worked in the field, driving around LA County into the camps, into the kids' homes, to their schools, in the community for about a year and a half as well. And then, of course, if you've ever worked in your car, um, that can become very lonely. Um, It's isolative. Um, What I love about it is it's very flexible. You can literally create your own schedule within your work hours and decide what you're going to do first. But it was draining driving from Compton to Malibu to the camp then back to LA then to three other kids houses like it's draining. So I did that for about a year and a half and then I decided you know what I need to sit put and the only option was to go to work back with that population was to go back to juvenile hall. So now that you have some a little bit of context okay now I decided for whatever reason, to go back to juvenile hall. When I went there, all the staff were looking at me like, why did you come back? Oh my God, you finally got out and you got a private practice. Why are you here? Now at this time I had a group practice. Um, I had interns, I had a part-time caseload. So why did I go back? Because she was willing to work with my schedule and to give me the schedule that I wanted. um, I'm not going to lie. like It was very flexible because she needed staff. She had a very high turnover rate. And when I say she, it was the program manager at the time. So when I came back, just to let you know the outcome, and then I'll give you the backstory, is I lasted 43 days, y'all. 43 days. So you're like, Oh my God, what happened? So, um, I'm going to give you the sequence of events. When I got back, I recognized that she put me in a, a younger unit. When I was there the first time I was with 16 and 17 year old boys, it was maybe 15 units open or something like that. It's only two girls units. How the juvenile hall was set up. Cause I believe now it's closed is, or that one is closed is the, they had regular units And then they had units that were, I'm going to say, specially assigned to certain groups of kids. So one, there were two units called the special housing unit called the SHU. And those two units were for, I'm going to say like the boys were for either the younger boys who couldn't be housed in general population. Um, It was the LGBTQ population that couldn't be housed in general population. It could um, also be kids who just needed a break from general population. Maybe they had found out about a death of a loved one and we needed to isolate them from other kids because maybe they were, you know, they were irritable. They needed just time to decompress. So they may only be in there for about a day. We also had kids in there that may be actively suicidal and we just needed a a group of pair of eyes on them because the special housing unit was not supposed to have that many kids in there to begin with so that it's more attention with probation. So the boys unit typically had on rotation like seven or less boys in there. Now the girls were a different story. The the, The girls were in there for the same reason, but then we also had a separate group of girls who were fighting their fitness, meaning they were, it was it was going to be determined if they were going to be tried as an adult or as a minor. So the, those type of girls were also housed, which means that we had way more girls in the unit. It was like 20 plus girls, if not maybe 40 in the girls special housing unit. So the reason I'm explaining that is the relationship to staff is vitally important. The staff that was housed in the girls' special housing unit the shoe was there for 10 years at the time a decade she grew a very close relationship not just to the girls because unfortunately research showed that 70 percent of the kids or seven out of ten of the kids would recycle back into the juvenile system after being released the recidivism rate was very high so um and recidivism rate is just like how often they come back so seven out of ten kids return back So this particular clinician, she was very familiar with all the girls, right? Very close relationships. So keep that in mind. Then in the boy's shoe, that young lady had been just at the juvenile hall. She may not have been in the boy's shoe per se, but I know that she had been there for about five years, I believe. I'm just now coming back. I was there for six months and then I'm now here for 43 days. So when I got back, they put me into what I consider the baby, the second level baby unit. So the baby unit is like the 14 and 15 year olds. And so I don't know, at first I had a problem with it, but when I got there, you know, I loved it. The kids attached to me really quickly. Um, I built a rapport with them. I built a rapport with probation super quickly. And the type of therapist that I was, I would not just stick to my unit. Like when it was Halloween, I got approval from probation. I wore my little ears. Cause I, you know, I'm not going to get fully dressed, but I wore my little ears. Um, like, uh, I don't know, like some cat ears or whatever. And then I had a, a pumpkin with candy, um, that was, you know, wrapped or whatever. And then I would go around to each unit. And if probation approved it, I would give the kids candy because I, you know, they're still kids, even though they may have done something, not that great. They're still kids. And so, um, so I would go around and meet other probation officers. And so um, what that leads to was the rapport building that I do and what led to these series of events. So I was in the unit for um, a couple of weeks. And the reason why they told me that I was also in a different building was that they had just moved around um, different um Groups of kids because the air they were fixing the air conditioning or something like that, right? So just keep that in mind that there were a lot of changes even in movement with groups of kids. And so when I got there, you know, I still had the same individual supervisor, everything was cool, it was straight. So, um, I got called into the office one day with my supervisor, and this was around about the time where um, I had started recognizing that I was getting tension headaches. I had went to my doctor like once or twice. They gave me ibuprofen, Motrin, and they said, you know, it may be stress. We can't find anything wrong. Um, just get some rest because they knew where I worked and I'm like, all right, but I don't feel stressed like I didn't think that I was stressed because even though beyond management I liked what I did with work so I'm like, I can't be stressed like I'm fine, you know, I still go to the gym I still do all these things, whatever so they said, just you know take some time take take a break so I'm like, all right so Also, when I was driving to work, sometimes I would have to pull over and I felt like I was nauseous. And from time to time, I would actually vomit. And I'm like, what the heck do I have? The stomach flu, I knew I wasn't pregnant, you know, nothing, right? So I'm like, dang, what the heck is wrong? And I noticed that my headache would only come when I was going to work and it would leave it would be on and off when I was at work and then it would leave when I would literally be leaving work. And I'm like, oh my gosh. When I recognize that, that's when I realized it might be directly linked to work. So um, around maybe the 30 something day, my supervisor calls me in, my immediate supervisor, and he calls me and he says, Hey, I need you to come to the office. It's about some changes. So immediately I'm thinking it's about the unit changes. I'm thinking they're going to say, Oh, we need to uproot you and the kids again and probation because of the air conditioner. And they're going to move you to a different unit. So pack up all your stuff in your office, whatever. Cause I never unpacked all my stuff to begin with because they told me that we might be moving. So he also said that we're going to meet with her, the program manager. And I'm like, this is weird. Why does she have to be in the meeting? He was like, I'll just come over here. So I walked over there, but then my stomach started turning because my gut was telling me, I was listening to your gut. My gut was telling me something is not right. So when I walked into the office, he he called her in and they start to, well, he didn't even say anything actually. He just sat there. So, and you can tell he looked uncomfortable, but that's his superior. So she started giving me all these compliments about how I'm in a quote unquote an effective clinician. Remember that phrase, because it's gonna come back up. But she said, I'm an effective clinician and she gave me all of these accolades. And I said, oh, is that why I was called in here? Oh, okay. And so I'm listening, like, okay, well, what's coming next? What is the change? Are we do I need to go pack my stuff? And she said, Well, actually, yes, we're going through some changes. As you know, such and such staff has accepted a position into the prison, like into a whole nother system, into the prison system. So we need to make some changes within the staff. I said, okay, what does that have to do with me? So she proceeds to tell me that the changes are going to be, she's going to move the 10 year staff. That's why I gave you the context of the staff. She's going to move the 10 year staff that's in the girl's shoe to the actual girls' unit, like the regular unit. And I said, why? And she said, because most of the girls who are in the girls' special housing unit, they often, when they're fine and back to normal level, they get shifted over to the girls' unit and she already has a rapport with all the girls. I said, okay, that makes sense, I guess. So I said, okay, what does that have to do with me? So then she said, the girl who's in the boys' special housing unit, they're gonna take over my unit. I said, "Okay, but there's still two units that are left, right? So I said, "What is where do I go? Like which unit do I take over?" And she says, "Um, you're going to take over both of the special housing units." Now, mind you, the reason why I gave you the context of both units is because both of those units are very high risk. And so I said, how am I going to handle both of those units? They're on two different sides of the facility. You told us we can't use our cell phones and we're on call like once every week, maybe twice a week. And how am I supposed to handle all this? And she said, but I know that you're good at what you do. So the reason why she basically buffed up how I am a great clinician is simply because she wanted to throw these big ass mountains to me saying, Oh, but you about to be over these of the highest risk units. So I'm like, this feels like a goddamn setup. Excuse my language. So I said, do I have a choice? And she was like, no. I said, so why did you ask me? Did I have any questions? Cause she said, do you have any questions? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, what am I going to say? You know? So, um, so then what ended up happening is um, I, went, I asked her, I said, have you told the other girls? And she said, no, you're the first one we told. And I said, oh, hell no. I said, why did you tell me first? Like, they've been here longer. I feel like seniority, they should be told first. So she said, well, I'm going to tell them next. So I was like, all right. So I told my supervisor, I said, hey, can you walk me back to my unit? So of course he heard it. Like, I went off. I was cursing. like, what the F? Blah, 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 blah. You know, like, this don't make no goddamn sense. And he was like, I know, I know, I know. But, you know whatever. And so when I saw the five-year girl, I said, Oh, y'all about to tell her right now. Boom. So I called her out on spot. I was like, I called out her name across the unit yard. And I'm like, Hey, they want to meet with you. I was being hella petty, but I'm like, at this point, all in y'all don't care about my feelings. So F that y'all I'm everybody about to find out. And so they told all the girls. And when I left that day, I saw that I I passed the 10 year girl and she was red And I'm like, I didn't even want to say anything to her because low key, they gave me her like job. So then something told me, go talk to the five-year girl, go see what actually happened. So I went and talked to her and she was like, can you close the door? So in a summary, she said, I know that you didn't have anything to do with this, but I already talked to 10-year girl. And what really rubbed us the wrong way is that when we asked, why is it that Takesha gets our two units um, and then we have to take over these other units. The rationale they gave these two women clinicians is that the reason why I got their uh, positions in these units is because I'm an effective clinician. That is a very bad position to be in. And I'm like, what the hell? That just makes me look like the big bad wolf, even though they know it was not in my intent. I didn't choose to do that. So. Needless to say, to speed things up, because I don't want to give you too, too many de- too, too many more details. I mean, you can get the flow. We then got together, all three of us, because of course the 10 year girl caught out the next day, which hell I would have to, because you've been there for 10 years and they doing you like this. So I talked to both of them before a staff meeting and we agreed to go talk to the program head and say, instead of moving mountains, why don't you just move small trees? Meaning why don't we just all group up and cover the one unit that's not covered, which is the girl's special house, the girl's regular unit. Why don't we all group up and just cover that unit? We all take a day. And she was like, no, we already covered it with probation. So, okay. So within a couple, within 24 to 48 hours, we now have to break the news to the kids. So we go break the news to the kids. In a nutshell, I get cursed out by the girls for like two days straight. They calling me all kind of B words. I don't like you. I kind of knew that that was going to happen. I didn't take it personal. But then what I did start taking personal is when I, I sensed that Probation didn't like my presence there. And I don't think that it was anything personal toward me. I just think that they were going through what's called a grief and loss process because they were losing someone if they had had a close relationship for 10 years. You know what I'm saying? And so because I was able to take a step back and realize it's not me, but unfortunately I'm the target, I was able to get through it, but it still low-key hurt and it put me in a very uncomfortable position, but I was still able to do my job effectively like for 48 hours. So then the last draw for me, was when one of the head of probation came in, one of the supervisors came in, she was black and she just came into the office when I was actually in the girls special housing unit, kind of taking over the role. Um, and she said, you know, she sat down in a chair. She didn't even like say, can I come in? She just came into the office and she said, um, why do you think they put you in here? And that question made me feel hella uncomfortable. And I'm like, what, you know, what do you mean? But at this point, honestly, I don't trust anybody. I feel like it's a setup. I feel hella paranoid and I feel like all of these decisions that are being made, I feel like I'm being thrown under the bus. That's just a feeling that I have. So, and and let me just give you why I feel that way as well. There was something that happened in the in-between of all this stuff happening where within this 30 something or 40 something days, I went to a, uh, 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 what is it? Sexually exploited youth uh, training. It was a two-day training. I went with my immediate supervisor and another clinician. And as we're doing lunch, I had asked him, like, do you know why all these changes are being made? And he started laughing. And he was like, well, honestly, and I don't think that he, he didn't know that I didn't know this. He said that the program head knew that I, when I came back um, from my transfer in, she knew that I would build rapport with staff very quickly. So she just wanted apparently for me to get my feet wet back in juvenile hall because she knew that these changes were happening because she knew that the staff was leaving. And I also found out that this particular staff that was leaving that accepted a position in the prison system, she actually asked the, the program head, do you need me to stay a few weeks? Because she knew that we didn't have any other staff lined up to take her job. And the program head said, no, you can go ahead and leave. We got it covered. Why the hell would you do that? You have someone who's willing to stay an additional two weeks so that we can get more organized and you let her go and then you make all these changes. That's hella dumb. So I'm like, after I start finding all these pieces out, I'm like, okay, this is a setup. So When the supervisor was in there for probation, she started pointing at her skin and she said, do you think they put you in here because of this? Because she's black and I'm black. And I looked at her and I'm like, actually, no, because the uh, population that's actually in the girls' unit is predominantly Hispanic. So I don't think she put me in here for that at all. I would have been better off in the boys unit you know where there's mostly black boys and so she gave me this whole 20 minute analogy that was not invited and she basically told me that they're throwing me under the bus and to watch my back and she's just being courteous to tell me because she's looking out for her own because quote unquote they look out for theirs meaning other ethnicities and when she said that that perked me up and I was like oh shoot And so I said, okay. So then she said, um, what's your caseload looking like? And I said, oh, I'll bring you the list. Give me a second. I'll print it out because I had to look at who was left on my caseload for the girls unit. And the boys uh, special housing unit as well. So I brought her a printout and I said, I have this amount of kids. It was like 16 girls in the girl's shoe and about, I'm going to say 4.5 boys in the boy's shoe because one of the boys was at the hospital, but he was coming back. So she said, so you got about 20 kids in your caseload? I said, yeah. So then she started whispering because they were in the control center where all the probation sit. And I said, why are you whispering? And she said, because in our head of program people meeting When she, she, our program head uh, for mental health, when she set this up because they were trying to figure out how one person was going to cover two of the highest risk units in the facility, they had questions as well. And they also didn't know me, but they knew of me. They knew that I did my job well. Um, And she said, I know you're an effective clinician, (laughs) right? Then the reason she started whispering is she said, that's not what they told us in the meeting. She told us in the meeting that you will have no more than approximately 10 kids on your caseload so that you can balance out going back and forth to both units. And that's when I was like, oh my God, this is truly a freaking setup. She said, watch your back because if anything falls through the cracks with any of these kids, especially related to mental health, who do you think they going to throw into the bus? And all the probation looked at me and I'm like, Oh my God. And so at that point, I started to feel a sense of panic. I walked outside. I literally made a phone call to a job that I had had before as a supervisor. And I said, do you have a position open? Do you have a position open with benefits? I may need to transfer out where I'm living. I may have to leave the county. They made a couple of phone calls. They called me back and said, yes, you can start in a couple of weeks. You do get benefits. Let me email you the information. I'm real quick to my feet when it comes down to making decisions if I don't feel good right and so don't 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 like sleep on something so then I said okay so I felt a little safe but I still felt unsafe so that was the end of my shift that week after being cursed out multiple times and going back to her and asking the program head can we make some adaptations to your changes and she said no and then probation basically telling me that I need to watch my back multiple times throughout the freaking day so I'm like I'm on edge so and my headaches are getting worse so um I work on that Friday. I'm off that Saturday. Actually, no. I'm supposed to go to work on that Saturday. So, because uh, we work every other weekend. So at five o'clock in the morning, I wake up. I'm with my current husband, but he's my fiance at the time. I wake up in the middle of the morning at like four o'clock or five o'clock, and I feel like I'm about to burst. So I quickly run downstairs, and as soon as I hit the couch, I started. You would have thought somebody died very close to me how much I was crying. Okay. And so I guess he heard me and the purpose of of me going downstairs is because I didn't want him to hear me. So he came downstairs after about 10 minutes or 15 minutes and he was like, what's wrong? Did somebody get hurt? Are you okay? And I said, I don't know what's happening, but I think I'm having a panic attack because I had had one like previously, like a decade ago. And so I said, I need to go to see a counselor. I need to go see a counselor. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to work. And he was like, all right, all right, all right. Let me get you some water. So I end up waiting until regular business hours. I lay back down. I just chilled on the couch and I did some deep breathing, like all the stuff I teach my clients. And then I end up... um, calling like, um, different, like my insurance through my teaching job through EAP, the employment assistant program, just to see who I can get a therapist, uh, with first. So I ended up calling Kaiser, um, who was my medical insurance through the County. They made me an appointment. They did an assessment over the phone. I was fine. And then I made an appointment to go in that Monday. So I caught off work and then I went in that Monday. So by the grace of God, the person who did my evaluation, Apparently he used to work at the same juvenile hall. So within 10 minutes I have prepped, like, how am I going to give him all the information information I gave with you? um, But also break down the acronyms and how to break down, like how the juvenile hall is set up and all this stuff. How am I going to break this down to a therapist in 45 minutes? Right. And so I went in there and I started to explain to him the context of my symptoms and like the context of my job. And he said, where do you work? What facility? And I told him the name of the facility and he said, oh, who's the program head? Is her name so-and-so? And I looked and I'm like, are you her son or something like that? Like, who the hell are you? And he was like, oh, I used to work there. I said, oh my gosh. I said, when? He said, well, I worked there for a while and then I quit when she started. Actually, a lot of us quit because she was ridiculous with her expectations. And that's like a whole nother podcast episode. He said, you don't even have to explain to me the setup. I already know. Just tell me what you're experiencing in symptoms. And I swear that was like the best intake I've had. He took me off work for a week. I ended up going to a group therapy session for anxiety. Um, got some meditation audios, um, helped me calm down. But then during that seven day break, I actually took a step back and asked myself, is this the lifestyle that I want to have? Is this how I want to earn six figures? And the answer is no. There is no amount of money that's going to buy my health. I'm sorry. And if I have to go with tension headaches every day, I'm good. Because guess what happened to my tension headaches and any type of nausea during that one week break? I didn't have any. And the crazy part is I was planning a wedding, a very lavish wedding. In Hollywood. All right. I had a balance due and I decided to take a break, recognize that this was not the outcome that I wanted, especially going into another season of my life, being married, having a blended family, then extending our family. I didn't want to have this in the next season. And so I decided to go against the grain, take a leap of faith and leave the County. And how did I leave the County? I simply sent a letter. I faxed and emailed all the supervisors since they like to CC everybody. And my supervisor called me immediately like, oh my God, you're leaving, da, 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 da. And I'm like, it should be no surprise. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? He was like, I know, I'm proud of you, but like, we didn't expect it. And I said, yeah, I ain't coming back after this week. So I said, instead of a two week notice, take this as my notice, I'm not coming back. And I did my therapy, I got my health together. And then I went full fledged into um, building my business on a whole new level. And what I did surprise myself with is the amount of money that I was making collectively between all streams of income um, at that time, making about a quarter of a million dollars because I was bringing in with overtime about 130,000 from the county. And then I was bringing in No, I was bringing in 120 from the county and 130 from my other streams of income, including my group practice. And so you know, it was some good years, but I was too stressed out, y'all. And so I said, you know what? Even if that means that my income has to drop a little bit, I'd rather have my health than have all this money because I'm not going to be able to enjoy it if I'm in the bed. And I want you to remember that if you're constantly chasing the money. Okay. So I really hope that you heard this episode, that you enjoyed this episode, but more importantly, that you heard my journey of how did i get to the place that i am today and am i saying that the county is a bad place no am i saying that the juvenile hall or facilities is a bad place heck no i loved probation i love those kids but sometimes when you work under particular people that can be the drawback to you deciding if you decide that all money ain't good money you know what i'm saying and to me i felt like i was paying for politics over my health and the enjoyment of what I was doing for a living. So um, if you feel like this episode resonated with you, please leave me comments. Let me know what was your biggest takeaway. Snapshot this episode and put it on IG and I will shout you out as well, but let me know your biggest takeaway. And also share this episode with someone who may be battling leaving their job, whether they're a therapist or not, but maybe some of the things that I shared in regards to my physiological symptoms and or just the things that were happening with management resonates with someone that you know. So I really hope that you enjoyed it. Um, I will see you on the next episode. I really enjoyed your time today. I love you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast episode today. I am super excited to see your growth in your business, career, money, and relationships. Be sure to check me out on Instagram at Dr. TK Psych, where you can find daily inspiration and tips to live your abundant lifestyle.